0: Starting right now on ABC's This Week. New this morning, the patient in Dallas infected with Ebola, now in critical condition, fighting for his life. As health officials scramble to contain the deadly disease, new concerns about how the hospital handled him. Is the U.S. really prepared for an outbreak? Our Dr. Besser is here, just back from the hot zone.
1: Ebola. Ebola. Ita. don't touch friend.
0: All right, come to episode 133 of Tell Me Where to Turn.
2: So we're back, and we're not just back from the last episode, but we're we're back together.
0: We're literally back.
2: This is, uh, the last episode, I believe, that was recorded in here might have been like episode 99.
0: Yeah. Around and like this is 9, also the most famous episode ever was recorded in well,
2: here. Well, I mean, that's a given. <laughs> when that's you going were
0: spitting on the floor. And...
2: Yeah, that's the way back. Yeah.
1: The way back machine. Skype not being utilized. This no. is face to face. Four walls, (laughs) six. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We are in
0: Glenn's garage. It's approximately 105 degrees. It's
2: not too bad in here. You have a fan.
0: Look at that. It oscillates and everything. I was going to say, I do do appreciate the oscillation. I think uh, whenever I'm evaluating fans, oscillation is always a big factor for me. Uh, I think so, too.
1: Who are you, by the way?
0: So you can find me on Twitter, at Tommy2 underscore zero. And bonus... As, a, as, a, as it relates to this show, there will be companion tweets and photos that will accompany the release of each episode. Oh, wow. Wow. So if you don't already follow me on Twitter, which I can't imagine you wouldn't because what a glorious ride that's been, make sure you do that and tell your friends because there will be bonus content.
2: Okay. Uh, you can find me at glenn three underscore eleven, And uh, at least to this point, I plan on keeping my shirt on.
1: Well, I'm disappointed, and you can find me at Point break underscore Dave,
2: and the show at Where to Turn
1: Pod. Do we need to get to why everyone's actually listening?
0: Yes, and thank you for listening.
2: Here we are, WrestleMania One. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let's go move
0: by move. WrestleMania One to Thirty. No, so we're here. We're here to finally, after many years, revisit the events of October 2014. Ebola. Yes. Referred to uh, at my place of work as the October incident because it was not ever, fr- it was always frowned upon to even say Ebola. Uh, it, was such a, it had such negative connotations
1: in the office. But that's such the mare in Jaws. There was apparently a predator that injured some bathers. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Did you feel, did the company feel that Ebola was culturally insensitive or just scary to people?
0: No, I believe, uh, I believe that uh, it was just it, it just brought up such negative feelings amongst the uh... to get to my involvement in this, and this is what I wanted to go ahead is they say when you're given a speech, you should establish to your audience why they should listen to you, and I'm going to give you my credentials of why I am the authority figure. Let's so did it. you know who the very first person? to get a phone call that said there might be a patient with Ebola. And I guess I shouldn't say the very first person. The very first person that doesn't have the word doctor in their <laughs> name to get that call was, I'll um, give you a hint. He's in this garage right now, and it's not Glenn or Dave. Wow. Yeah. What was
2: your response to that? Like,
0: oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I got to go get a turkey sandwich. Yeah. It was actually funny. I was in my car. I was driving in in the morning and i got yeah, hold the on call
1: real quick do we need to establish when there wasn't an outbreak of a deadly disease in a major metropolitan area what was your role so it's kind of funny so my role why was, are you getting this <laughs> call
0: so my role that's a good question dave and i'm glad you brought that up that's this is good context so my role was in the marketing side of the business marketing meaning specifically things that we paid for to put messaging out to potential customers.
1: And so this is at Texas Health Resources. Yes, this was
0: at Presby, Dallas, Big Presby, Walnut Hill, 80, 8200 Walnut Hill Lane, Dallas, Texas. And that's
1: where you were every Monday that, to Friday. That
0: was where my office was. It was in the hospital. So my office yeah. was in a building where you might get in the elevator one day and there might be somebody in there vomiting into a bedpan or... Handling an IV pole like that was my that was the world I lived in, and wow. every bit of HR that went on there was all treated like I was in the clinical space. So I had to get all of the uh, blood tests, the inoculations, the um, had to go to employee health to get treated just like I was treating patients. I, I had to adhere to the same. Um, dress codes, PTO standards, everything that the clinical people did, because I was in a hospital. So for all intents and purposes, I was treated, even though I didn't do patient care, I was in patient care areas enough that I was treated the same way for HR purposes like those giving care to patients. But you didn't have to wear scrubs to work? Didn't have to wear scrubs, Did have to wear closed-toed shoes at all times, so my flip-flop dream didn't materialize.
2: Real reality. Did you get to sneak into any evaluation rooms and pretend you were a doctor and (laughs) give breast exams? Because I know that happens at that hospital.
0: I am uh, so offended by your callousness, but most importantly, I had an ID badge that would get me anywhere in the hospital. So there was very few doors in the hospital that I couldn't open. I, I had almost unfettered access to the hospital, including to every parking lot which was a big deal at the time because they were very strict on where employees could park but because I worked in marketing we would frequently run events and had, would have to deliver, you know, big pieces of equipment for an event like I had the ability to go in and out at will to every parking lot which was a perk that very few on the at the facility enjoyed and this is all going to come in very handy so file that away in your mind okay so my role had nothing to do with the media or media relations, but I did manage the team that worked there. Well, it so happened that we were going through a bit of a reorganization at the time, and there had been some turnover. So there was it was unclear who was going to fill the role of media liaison. The hospital is required by the emergency preparedness guidelines to have a disaster plan at all times. And in this disaster plan, they have to have what's called the POC or point of contact for emergencies. At the time, we were going through a slight organizational change. Our old PR person was going to be shifting to more of a corporate role. We had a brand new person that just started that had zero experience. So when they do the quarterly audit of the emergency preparedness plan, I had told them, hey, just put me as the emergency point of contact for the next quarter. And then when this new person we've hired is up to speed, then we'll transition it to her, which because it makes more sense in her job
1: function. Man, do you want to do over on that one? Yeah, no kidding. In, in hindsight,
0: it was terrible, but like I mentioned, we never, we never had those incidents. Well, there's another funny thing that compounded my role. So we had, the hospital had recently done an experiment with a new hospital president, and he didn't last very long, and he had been relieved of duty probably just a month before this happened. So they actually didn't have a hospital president at the time either.
1: And Tommy's like, yeah, you just go ahead and put my name down as president, too. <laughs>
0: yeah, President
1: Tommy has a nice ring to it.
0: But this former president was a real eccentric leader. He was one of those guys that overly bought into leadership books, and he would have these leadership roundtables that I was required to attend, and we would do like a book club on a leadership book. Well, one of these specific books he read was talking about the importance of leaders within your organization building personal relationships with each other. Mm. Not sexual relationships. So I see where you're going with this. Personal relationships. (laughs) So, he had developed this mandatory program called, um, it, was, it wasn't it was called Lunch and Learn, but it was like, it was some catchy phrase with lunch, you know, lunch and shoot the breeze or whatever. I don't remember what Dine it was called. Dine and dock. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, it just so happens that... eat and eat. Possibly. So, it just so happens that the month before my assignment was to have lunch with the director of infectious disease at the hospital. Mm, Yes. And I will say most of the lunches had been pretty awkward, but this lady and I had a particularly... Well, yes. (laughs) lady (laughs) had a particularly nice lunch, and...
1: Quick question. As Glenn and I are not in the medical field, if you're the director of infectious disease, is it kind of like where... Cops have to get pepper sprayed to know how it feels. Does she have to get all the diseases?
0: I'm going to start making notes of the worst questions that have been asked during this episode.
2: And that's in the lead. Would you describe um, this director of infectious disease? Is she more Mandy Rose,
0: Ember Moon, or Asuka? Mandy Rose. Well. (laughs) And actually, again... This is not where the direction we need to take the podcast, but... But I'm picturing Mandy Rose as walking around the hospital very slowly from now on.
2: (laughs) Just curing all the infectious diseases.
0: This lady and I had a nice rapport at lunch. I'll leave it at that. But she was a very very nice lady, and to the point where we had uh, exchanged phone numbers, you know, maybe there's a chance we could collaborate on something down the line. Network, if you will. If you will. So the first call I got when this happened was actually from her, and what's funny is she called me not because I was officially the hospital's point of contact for emergencies, because they hadn't even cracked open the emergency plan yet, but because of this lunch we had had a couple weeks earlier. And she knew that I vaguely worked in the communications space. She knew that I knew the right people, so she she was doing her due diligence at the time to say, hey, we had kind of a weird thing happen in the emergency room. I wanted to let you know about it but we had a guy come in and we're sending his lab results off to see if it's positive for Ebola. And I said, oh, okay, thanks for the heads up. You know, if anything comes of it, you know, just be sure to let me know and I'll let the PR team know. And that was it. Like, it was not a big deal. So I hung up my phone, turned the ticket back on, <laughs> drove into work, never, never even gave it a thought. And in fact, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say, but my familiarity with Ebola just in general was pretty low. I mean, I knew it was a dangerous disease but i didn't know anything about the widespread epidemics throughout africa or how it was treated or how it was really unable to be treated just none of those things clicked with me at all what's happening here is she going to run into the garage no i told in?
2: you what would happen oh no no she's turning around oh she's turning she to try to back her in well i didn't know what was what was happening i sitting right
0: here um so when you got that call I really thought nothing of it because Yeah, you're thinking what are the odds. No, and the other thing is and not that I was I mean I had been in the business for a while but you do get jaded at some point because nothing ever really happens cuz you kind of do that whole what are really the odds of something happening. So even when they would, you know, when they would say you know, a mass casualty event or these different things that we had to prepare for, prepare for and train for, in the back of your mind there's always that thought of yeah, I know it's important to be prepared, but this is probably never going to happen. So you don't you just never like allow your mind to fully realize the yeah. fact that that could happen. So even even when she said this, I'm thinking, you know, okay, well probably this happens all the time. They send it off to the lab and nothing happens.
2: Negative. Yeah, and you're fine. Yeah. I mean, I, I live in much the same space with catastrophic type plans that we have at work, but I live in the space of there's like a 0.5 percent chance right. at best this ever happens. Right. If it happens, I'm going to be completely exposed, probably <laughs> fired, but I can live with that.
1: Right. So you had never received a call like this before,
0: N- not specifically to Ebola. We had we had received calls before, and around things of like there's a concern there may be an active shooter on the campus. Okay. And then we'll whoa, immediately whoa, whoa. again. At the first time I got this call, I freak out. And then five minutes later, it's a call back of like, oh, no, it was a car that backfired. I mean, literally okay. Okay. that level. So, so not, not that I'm getting a ton of these anyways, but every, every time there was even an inkling that something might really notable be going wrong, it was always quickly like, nope, false positive. Okay. So the, the unique situation in the Ebola is there's actually not an Ebola test that the hospital lab has on hand. You have to send that to the CDC in Austin. So the, the the actual like national CDC is in Georgia. True, but Austin has a branch of the CDC. So a test like this gets shipped to Austin by courier. So this is not this is this is she's calling me in the morning. The, the, they're not anticipating a lab result on this till maybe that night or the next day.
1: Okay, so let me ask this: You get this call about Ebola, and you're on the whatever emergency preparedness whatever that document is. Mm-hmm. What? Can you think off the top of your head are there other diseases that would be in that realm is it Ebola like the tippy top like this is the worst one we could get a call about as far as just the way it spreads and the danger of it or
0: I think I- Ebola wasn't even on the radar okay. That's how bad it was but no there's a lot of there's a lot of dangerous infectious diseases and skin eating bacteria you know they're always worried about people exposing like bioterrorism so so there's a lot of Bad things that could happen, but the idea of somebody bringing Ebola in, like that, was not anything that was ever talked about or discussed. We did training for contagion situations, right. but it was always at a at a blanket level, and I think it was always probably more thought of with the intent of some there was some type of bio attack that yeah. exposed the contagion, not not the scenario that played out. Ebola sh- certainly tier one, though, absolutely. Yeah. So again. For me, it was tier thirty. So even her saying Ebola, I didn't. I mean, this is how bad it was. I didn't even tell anybody. I, I I got into my office. I didn't. I didn't like immediately raise the alarm. And I remember in at midday, I was talking to my boss about something else, and I said, "Oh, hey, FYI, the uh, ER had called earlier today and said that there was a patient they might be concerned about having Ebola." And my boss was like, "Oh, well, you know, let us know if anything comes with that, you know, but it's still like not a big deal. Like nobody just." It, at this point, we had just been conditioned to think, especially and again, we're not clinical. This is marketing, yeah, PR. We're, we're, I mean, there was no reason for us to think this was going to ever balloon into anything. It just, yeah. it was just, it was just one of those, "Hey, we're keeping you in the loop" kind of situations. Well,
2: and no immediate reason, immediate reason to panic, right? It's just you're just kind of taking note of the heads up anyway, right?
0: And the information flow at this time is really slow. So all we know is that there's a guy that's currently being held in the ER that they suspect might have Ebola and they've sent a test. I don't even know if they said suspected Ebola. They just said they sent a test to the to the but CDC.
1: This patient that they're suspecting of Ebola is mm-hmm. currently in that hospital where your office is. Correct. So they yeah, we're surprised knowing you as long as I have <laughs> and knowing that you're borderline a hypochondriac. I'm surprised that you didn't move to
2: Tennessee
0: right away. <laughs>
1: That actually makes a lot of sense, though. Yeah. No. I'm surprised it didn't concern you more.
0: At the time, we were so so, so sure it was a uh, was far-fetched. He, you know, the patient was in the emergency room. My office is on the complete other side of the hospital. Like, there was never any concern for safety or concern so, about what might have happened. It was just, it was really just a, oh, hey, by the, I mean, I really told my boss as an afterthought. I just never occurred to me that this was going to be anything. Do you know if they had him quarantined at this point? They had started to put into place protocols. So there's protocols that are in place. And again, I want to be very clear. This from a legal perspective. I had nothing to do with patient care or Uh, treating the patient. So I'm basically just regurgitating very high-level things that I heard from others. This is not a definitive opinion in any way. But no, when they suspect somebody has an infectious or contagious disease, they put protocols in place, which is that the people taking care of them put on masks. And I'm not talking about like the big sci-fi masks, just... Just like a just, SARS yeah, mask. Just being more, just yeah. being a little bit more careful, keeping isolated from other patients. Nothing, nothing that you would see like in a horror film, for sure.
1: Yeah. So in your, you said you kind of had a blanket, contagious disease. What do we do? Mm-hmm. Those, like. You said they started putting in protocols at this time, but it wasn't like a, as soon as there's the possibility, we go DEF CON, whatever, and shut everything down. No, they had
0: a part of the emergency room that was dedicated to, that could be easily closed off, so they move the patient there, they close it off. My role in it is limited to communications, which is basically, hey, we need to control the media, control social media, you know, set up a place where people will go for press releases that they know are authentic from us. There was no... There's no no other that than just, like, your basic disaster planning.
1: You tried to buy up all the parody accounts, Ebola underscore Dallas yeah. handles and stuff.
0: So so later in that day, it starts to get a little dicier, so the patient's starting to do have more symptoms. And again, this is just secondhand that I've heard. I'm certainly not commenting on his care. That co- was starting to cause concern that this was a serious incident, even before the test results had come back.
1: Are there any doctors on premise that have like training in this sort of thing
0: yeah so we had one doctor and this guy talk about the guy that looks like he comes straight out of like every sci-fi film he's gray-haired gentleman very astute looking speaks you know very authoritatively that is a master in infectious disease and in fact he was the one that I think was was ready to make the call before the test result even came back based on what he observed, to the point where he had contacted our department again and said, this is a public safety issue. We need to make a statement to the media, even before the test results came in. So I contacted my boss, who's in another city, so I'm in Dallas. My boss is in Arlington, and said, hey, they're wanting to do a media event here to announce to the press that this, there may be a... A Ebola case in the hospital and they feel like it's a public safety situation and they need to and again in hindsight it's laughable but she's like well you can handle that right and I'm like yeah absolutely like they hadn't even sent in the reinforcements from corporate yet yeah It's just a statement. No, and we had done we had done press conferences before. So, like, my thought is like, oh crap, we've got to get the press conference backdrop set up so that the logos (laughs) look good behind the doctors, right? So we get we get our chief medical officer and this infectious disease guy, and we say like, look, we're going to bring some camera. You know, there'll probably be some news agencies that are interested because we had sent out like a little, you know, one line like media statement at five o'clock about potential disease, you know, infectious disease, and. We had done, again, we do these before and we comment on all kinds of things and maybe one camera shows up and it's not a big deal.
1: Is there any back and forth at that time since you don't have the definitive result of the doctor wants to do this? Is there any pushback like, hey, let's, before we open this can of worms, let's to the media, let's make sure we're right. Or is everyone just implicitly trust his gut and you want to get ahead of it? So what you're saying is
0: what a competent public relations person would have done. <laughs> Not the POC that you're sitting across the table from. So no, there was, in hindsight, yes. So we basically sent this guy up here as an expert in infectious disease with no talking points, no prep <laughs> no. work, with the uh, ch- chief medical officer. And I'm I'm in my office, and I'm still at this point. I'm doing other things. I've got other projects that are live. I'm, I'm sure I'm working on some, you know you know, NICU reunion event or something. <laughs> it's very timely. Yeah, well, actually, that. it was timely because we had to cancel it later on. So yeah. I, well, I stroll over to where the press conference is going to be and again, you know, my job, you know, ensure that the materials were there that we needed and then we have AV department that would sets up the ladder. Well, I walk in this room and it's like a, one of our smaller conference rooms. I've never seen more cameras in my life and these are people, this is just local media that have mobilized in the last hour. Was it because the word Ebola was yeah. mentioned? Who mentioned Ebola? Ebola was not mentioned by us, but it was inferred pretty quickly by the media. And what we found later is that we had a ton of leaks. Okay. Mm. So people are texting people. People yeah. are talking. I mean, that's the problem with a news story like this is you can't contain it. And I'll get into great more detail great more detail about this later, about the the extent that this became an issue. But I walk in this room and I'm like, oh my gosh. And so then I'm calling my boss on the cell phone. I'm like, you need to send some more people down here. And, th- and what's funny is... This is being broadcast live on TV.
1: Live. Wow. So,
0: I'm on my cell phone with my boss in the back of the room, who's in the room with her boss and then the director of all public relations for the health system.
1: And in the room you are in that locale, you are essentially running this event. I'm
0: running the event now. I mean, my I'm not like up there, you know, No You're more not questions. Speaking.
2: but
1: Hold that thought. He's coordinating.
0: So, it, so it, he's hold on. straightening the backdrop. Yeah.
1: Doctor, you send doctor up there with no talking. points. I
0: parts. send the two, the doctor and the chief medical officer up there with very loose talking points. He makes his first statement and and goes a little over the edge to start oh, panic, no. and then it just turns into like the scene from every movie of just peppered yeah. with questions. I mean, you just hear the buzz and the camera clicks, and it's a million questions, and it's going on and on. And this dude. He, I mean, and to use a wrestling term, he's now gone into business for himself. <laughs> he's answering questions. He's not thinking through how his answers might be perceived. The chief medical officer has not said one word. And is
1: just sitting there looking, like, terrified. The doctor, this is his WrestleMania moment. He's like, minimum 20,000 casualties yeah. today. And I'm,
0: <laughs> and I'm starting to, like... I'm starting to realize that we've got a problem here. Well, the irony is, it's being broadcast live on most of the news outlets. My boss is on the phone screaming at me, "You have to stop this." And I'm looking around and I'm like, "There's 30 cameras here. There's reporters everywhere. What do you want me to do?" And she's like, "You have to shut this down. Like you have to shut this down because this is this is spiraling out of control." So then I'm now I've That's now me. positioned myself behind the front of the cameras and I'm waving my arms at the doctor like giving him the right. cut sign he's totally no-selling me just i mean i think he's
1: he's in a groove he's on tv he's the doctor yeah so i know how this story ends did your boss tell you to run up there and superman punch him <laughs> or did you come up with that on your own
0: yeah i just hear hear me just punch the ground and go hoo-ah! well what had happened is the chief of pr for the health system was in route from Arlington. So who ran up there and stopped He this? gets there, comes in the room, and shuts it, the F down as soon as he walks in the room.
1: He drives from Arlington.
0: Yeah, no, no. He had left before it started. So he's in phone contact, and he's hearing, like, get there, shut it down. You've got totally, and I've never worked with the media before. I'm doing nothing except waving my arms around like an idiot. Were well, you-,
1: you still on the phone when the people in that room <laughs> were like, man, this Tommy guy's completely worthless.
0: Yeah, it was, it was really bad. What kind of music hit when he walked through the door? <laughs> so this guy shows up, shuts it down, and then the media doesn't leave. So now, again, typically when this is over, like they can't get out of there fast enough, and they're just all sitting in the room. So we walk out, and we make a game plan. We're like, we need to go back in there and tell them, like, we're not saying anything else tonight, so you guys can go home. Well, they don't leave. They all stay. Well, then what we start to realize is, out front of the hospital... They've all just pulled up in, like in the valet line. They've pulled up like parked in the grass. There's satellite trucks out there and they're not moving their crap. Like they're camped out. So we very quickly realized like this is a big problem Well, the hospital's freaking out because they've got patients that are concerned. They're worried about, you know, the perception of everything that now you've got all these media trucks in, in the yeah. parked in the grass.
1: They're getting the so, day one yeah. Ebola crisis logos ready for the newscast.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, the countdown So, of course, who would you call when this issue was coming in to come fix this problem? But Tommy 2 underscore zero, the guy who did so good shutting down the press conference. Now (laughs) it's it's been assigned my job to get them to move all their trucks that they're not in, that are just sitting out there idling in front of the hospital that there's nobody around. Yeah,
2: but isn't that like a fire safety issue?
0: It's all kinds of an issue, but we don't want to start – we are not in a position to start towing media trucks.
2: No, 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 no. I don't think you're there yet, right. but I don't think you're beyond you know being reasonable to say what if something else happens and yeah. the fire truck can't get here because <laughs> right. Channel that's
1: right. 5 and, that's exactly and what we did, Meredith we Land in, are hanging around. We brought, <laughs> Tommy we brought in our there. security team and they played the patient safety card and played it very well. I thought Tommy was going to go out there and like, I don't know if you heard the talk, but... Literally, there's Ebola everywhere in here, so you guys might want to pack it up. Do you see that red,
0: hot, and blue across the street? That's where you should be right now. So what we did, what we decided to do, which in hindsight actually was one of the few good plans that we had, is we had the Close former, the hospital. At the other edge of the hospital, the former building that was occupied by Texas Women's University for their... Um, I think uh, they did a lot of graduate medical education there. Had they had just moved into a new building. So we had this building that was essentially vacant. There was a few offices in there with a huge parking lot. So what we said is we're going we're gonna to cancel all events in this building, and that parking lot is now going to become media staging area, and we're going to okay. set up an area there, and then we're going to come out to this podium at various defined intervals during the day and make our media statements outside, away from the hospital. And this is far enough away from patient care. Well, little did we know, and I'm kind of skipping ahead in the story, but I'm going to skip ahead quick and come back. This t- turned into like a essentially like a refugee camp of every major media outlet, national Whoa. media. I mean, CNN brought in their full, huge, you know, RV portable indoor studio. Everything you can imagine gets set up in this parking lot to the point where you walk into it, it looks like the like the world's biggest swap meet with the wow with the motorhomes and and. I mean, generators everywhere, huge satellite dishes sticking up in the air. And I have some pictures of this that I'm going to share on my Twitter account, but it's hard to explain. Now, at the time, it was just local media, and this grew over the course of the week to when it really hit the fever pitch. But this was the kind of the genesis of that idea was to set up the staging area.
1: And this was your idea? Well, this was
0: our security team's idea, but I helped facilitate...
2: Collaborative. Yeah.
0: I helped facilitate the... uh, messaging and communication to get people escorted out in collaboration with our security. Did you try to
1: get some uh, career capital and, like, give it a name? Did you call it Project Showtime? (laughs) It's like, guys, Project Showtime, that was me. You see how they're not in front of this building anymore? They're in front of that building? (laughs) Yep, that was me, guys.
0: That was, yeah, Project Jaguar. That was me. About this time, the CDC in Atlanta has taken full notice of what's going on. And they've communicated to us that they're sending their crisis communication expert to embed Mm. with our team.
1: So, real quick, have you got confirmation from Austin at this point?
0: We did get confirmation from Austin between the press conference and the next day. Okay. Okay. I'm trying to recall, and it's a little fuzzy, if we released the information. I think we did release the information via press release, but we did not do another news conference about the results. But it had, at this point, been confirmed that there was a positive test, and at this point, every officer of the company that was located in Arlington from the CEO on down was en route to Dallas to embed in my office space that I managed. Wow.
1: Um. So, what are they... Is it blood, or is it other fluid that they send to test blood test blood yeah and is there because it sounded like in the beginning there wasn't a whole lot of concern by anyone it didn't sound like i mean is it a rush like hey we need to as soon as this gets here test it or
0: yeah it was sent with the highest level of oh, urgency God. but that was based on
2: his his description of symptoms or where he had maybe been within the last 30 days it was a combination of
0: that and the insistence of our infectious disease doctors. So what happened here, and again, I'm only reporting on things that were publicly available. This is not disclosing patient information. But we come to find out as news starts to trickle in, as they say, oh, yeah, um, he was here
1: yesterday, too. Oh. Tonight, new documents raise still more questions about how the hospital treated Duncan and why it initially sent him home. Manuel Bohorcas is in Dallas. Medical records released by Duncan's family to the Associated Press reportedly show his 103-degree temperature flagged with an exclamation point in the Texas Health Presbyterian record-keeping system. The records indicate during his visit to the emergency room two weeks ago, he said he felt dizzy, had a headache, and abdominal pain so severe he rated them an 8 out of 10. And though Duncan told a nurse he'd come from West Africa, he was sent home reportedly with antibiotics and Tylenol.
0: And um, we sent him home.
1: So this is the day before you get the call.
0: The day before we got the call.
1: He comes in. He had
0: come into the ER, and they sent him home with a diagnosis of, you know, basically just... I don't remember. I, again, don't know what the diagnosis was, but not Ebola. Some kind of
1: treatable cold flu type situation. So he just walks into the ER. Right. This is the day before. This is visit one. Correct. What... Do you have any details on what he what symptoms he had what they did what he said
2: He said he desired a room that was very poor
0: <laughs> So this guy had been in Africa and had Who just hasn't? yeah had just traveled to the United States and it came out much later that there's a very high likelihood that there was some some knowledge on his part that he might have been in some trouble when he came over here Again that's been widely reported. I'm not qualified to comment on that one way or the other. What I do know is that when you're in Africa and you go into a hospital and you're suspected of Ebola, you're treated very differently than you would be in America. So there are laws in America that say you have to provide at least life-sustaining care to anybody that comes in the ER, no matter where they're from, their condition, or their ability to pay.
1: So, if- And also probably their potential danger to those treating them. Correct. So probably it, not so much in Africa.
0: Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm, this is probably hyperbole, but if you walk into an emergency room in Africa and they think you have Ebola, they may literally throw you out of the hospital and say, like, if you come in here, you're going to infect the whole hospital. Get out. Good luck. Don't ever come back. So, I think probably some of that cultural differences plays into his approach when he comes into the ER. Ah. So... Again, you're running an emergency room. If you're just average emergency room doctor and a guy comes in with a fever, you're probably going to be like, yeah, it's flu season. You have the flu. There's never going to be – of course, now it's different because of this incident. But at the time, it was not – and it was not uncommon for people of various cultural backgrounds to come in. I mean, it's Walnut Hill in 75. I mean, there are literal refugee camps within a mile of the hospital. Yeah. There, you know, and that was one of the things that was frustrating about the news coverage is they tried to make a very racial component to it. But what they didn't know is where that hospital was located. We had every language of, or every nationality and language come through that emergency room every day. I mean, this was this was complete business as usual, and there was no reason to be suspicious. Where if you were maybe in another part of the country and a guy came in from Africa, you might say like, "Hey, how soon did you get in from Africa?" Here. That that was this was just a common day daily occurrence that Africans well, would come into the emergency. I mean, you room. have
2: DFW close by, so yeah. you have a place that's very easy ingress, egress, yeah. and in and again, out of the country.
0: You know, not to take the side of my former employer, but if you're in a very culturally diverse area in the middle of flu season and a guy comes in with a fever, you're probably gonna go there with your diagnosis. I don't yeah. think I don't think it's I think you're asking too much if you expect the clinician to say Wait a minute. What was your travel history? Were you exposed to you know somebody that recently died of Ebola? Like all these things that kind of subsequently so,
2: became yeah. part of the narrative. Because how do you deal with the situation of here's the the medical practitioner who has someone who's from Africa who comes in and assumes they might have Ebola? How right. you're dealing with that if they don't?
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. You kind of started down this, but you we got sidetracked. So you said it sounded like you were he may have slow played his initial contact yeah. with you? Yeah,
0: you know, again, as one not being present, I can only report on what was publicly available. But yes, the prevailing thought was, and again, this is again cultural differences. You would assume an American hospital would be able to very immediately diagnose any condition. So I think the expectation was if I go in here, they'll figure it out really quickly what's going on and give me a chance to, you know, have the best possible outcome. Yeah. And what ended up happening is what happens every night in the ER, which is that they crank hundreds and hundreds of people through there and discharge most of them home to say, take some take some Tylenol or Advil. And, here's a prescription. Yeah, maybe here's an antibiotic, but not, nothing you know, nothing that would warrant the level of, of what this disease requires.
2: It hadn't been that long since I've been there. That's what they did.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, again, as this information starts to trickle in, we realize that this has gone from being like a public safety nightmare to like a massive blow to the credibility and reputation of the hospital because now as the information's trickling in. We're like, this is a bad narrative. This is this, you know, podunk again, people's perception of Texas, even though it's a 900 bed hospital in the fourth largest city in the world, Mm -hmm. you know, hillbilly doctors can't, you know, you know, maybe a racial component can't figure out when a guy has one of the most notorious diseases in the entire world and send him on his way to infect Lord knows who else across the entire city because they're so incompetent. So we're starting to kind of work this out in our mind before it even hits the news that this is where this is headed.
1: When he comes in on day two, I know for ER patients, is it immediately tied, like when he signs in or whatever, is it immediately known that he was here yesterday Yes. Okay, so when infectious disease doc went off, went into business for himself, he knew that information. He did. Okay. And he
0: he. And I don't remember exactly. He might have even said that at the press conference for all I, I recall. But the information was starting to be collected more. So when I got that first phone call, it was just like, hey, there's a guy. We're sending a test off to be examined. It wasn't, hey, there was a guy that was here yesterday that we sent home that's now come back, and now we're really concerned. Yeah. That That all materialized
1: later. But this is still... Within the span of 24 hours, everything yes. we've covered so far. Yeah. So,
0: so, going back to where we, and I think that was a very important detail. So, thank you for bringing that out. The CDC was sending in their media relations fixer. And this guy, I mean, this guy was a piece of work. So, he leaked his travel schedule or made it in such a way because he wanted people to be waiting for him at the airport, the media to like create this scene. Uh. So I don't know if you remember, but there was a baggage claim scene of him, like, getting his roller bag off the conveyor belt and being, like, waving off, like, look, I don't have all the information yet. But he, he craved this attention. Right. Like, this guy wanted to be the face of this crisis. Okay. And he was doing everything in his power to insert himself into that immediately. He shows up, and one of our guys has to go get him from the airport. And he shows up and immediately starts doing the, uh, and this is like I can equate to like in the action movie, like when the FBI comes into the <laughs> they, local cops.
2: They're like, we've got this. Right. It's Agent Johnson and Agent Johnson. Yeah.
0: So he comes He comes in and is like, well, I think I'm just going to embed with you guys and here's what we're going to do. And he, and he especially like takes a liking to Tommy right away because I think he sees me as like a naive kid that he's going to just be enamored with his big time Yeah. So he he's he says, "Hey, you got a car?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And he's like, "Drive me to the media staging area." So by this time, CNN's got on the scene. He's like, "You're into DraftKings too, huh?" Yeah. <laughs> and he, I mean, he's name dropping like crazy. Uh, he's like, "You ever heard of Anderson Cooper?" And I'm like, "Yeah." I'm about to be live with him in five minutes. You know what? This would be good career experience for you. Why, why don't you come stand with me while I'm doing this? Now I'm not going to be on camera, but like stand behind yeah. the camera. You could see how this is handled. Like this would be good for you. Like so, he's. I mean, I think I'm in my late twenties at this point, but he's treating me like I'm a high school kid. You know, I mean just, just talking down to me. You know, opening opening the door for him, driving him around. So we get out to the opening the door for him. Oh yeah, I mean like I mean like he'll stand there and wait for me to hold the door for him. I mean like it in was your the, car. No no no, in the buildings and stuff. He oh. just walk up to the door. And then
1: he'd just stand there, and I'd have to pull the door open. It's still weird, but not as weird as the car. Okay. Yeah.
0: No, so this guy, I mean, this guy, I mean, I, I just immediately had a dislike for this guy. Anderson Cooper wasn't there. He was, but not at this point. He's still not alive via like satellite. day, one. This is day one. It's so like, he traveled? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. He was there. I've, I've got photographic proof that he was there. So he, he gets on, they, so they've set up the, the live shot for CNN with the hospital in the background. Like the actually the sign the the monument sign for the building where that's not really occupied. And the
1: exterior of that hospital yeah. is not impressive. So by that the way. yeah,
0: it's not. Sorry, but it's not. Yeah, it's kind of like national. Built, in the, it was
2: built Park. in the '60s. Like it, there's. It looks okay, but it's not put together very well. Yeah.
0: So they hand this guy the little earpiece. So he's going to be communicating with the Anderson Cooper's producer before he goes on air. And he's like, Yeah, okay. Well, don't ask me about the test results. Don't ask me about potential outbreak. Don't, it's like basically he's listening off anything anybody would possibly be interested in. <laughs> and it's like don't ask me about any of this. So then I'm I'm kind of thinking about Don't myself, ask me about Coors bets. <laughs> so he gets in front of the thing, they count him down to so the producers They're like we're going to be live in 3. And it, and I got to admit like for me that's pretty cool to see the whole satellite link set up. Yeah. I will say what's funny is, is you know, you think about the slick, glossy news. The people that they actually send to do the grunt work, like the camera people and the producers, are the sparest of the sparest of people. I mean, unshowered, just out of shape, just, I mean, everybody was wearing jorts. I mean, it was the most, the off-camera people in, in that industry are some of the most wheels-off,
1: yeah. carny-type yeah. people you've ever seen. What'd you do today? Well, I ran camera for Anderson Cooper... During the day, I ran the Gravitron at the state fair. <laughs> so he goes live with Anderson Cooper. So he's
0: got his little, he, they've got like the little boom mic up here so they can catch him. And the wind's blowing and he's listening intently and they've got the split screen up. You know, so you've got a very serious Anderson Cooper here. Well, Anderson Cooper's first question is, so do you, um, do you anticipate that there could be a danger of an outbreak of Ebola in Dallas? <laughs> and he kind of he kind of stumbles through an answer, but you can tell he's ticked. And then Anderson asks one more question, and the guy the guy kind of cuts him off. And then they said, "Okay, we're clear." He picks the headset out, like out of his ear and throws that whole thing on the ground. And he's like, "What the f was that? I effing told you not to ask me about an outbreak." And he like, but again, he's being like overly demonstrative, like yeah. to make a scene because he's Mister CDC, and he's like, "You've lost the right to ever, ever, ever have any more CDC comments on your network. You know I have the power to do that." And like, it's just. And the whole thing, and like the Jorts guy is just kind of like standing there, like "cool man," just <laughs> holding the boom cool, mic. Yeah, cool, cool story, bro.
1: Thinking about you when know Twin and he, Peaks. And he's like,
0: yeah, he's <laughs> you know, he's demanding an apology.
1: So real quick, do you know for all this guy's bravado, had he ever been in this type of? Similar, not obviously this, but a similar situation where he's on live. Yes.
0: Yeah. No, he had credibility and had done this before. Okay. I feel but like what he didn't have was any more information than anybody else had because there was no information at this time.
1: But I feel like that's a pretty, not that I know, but I feel like that's depicted a lot of the, hey, don't ask about this. And that's always what they ask because they don't care. Yeah. Like, it seems like he should have been like, as soon as I say not to do this, they're going to do it anyway. Yeah because
0: what's the downside
1: you you're not gonna, you can't sue them
0: no it's all it's all public information so we come we come back to the office i take him back to the office and at this point like the powers that be the ceo have already realized that this guy being around is not going to be conducive to us getting any real work done and also they can't trust him because again you know that whole fed local cop relationship cuz within 10 minutes of being on the ground he's live on cnn and they're like okay this is a liability like if we were going to have an honest frank discussion about the the care that's going on, the issues that we're dealing with, like we can't um, have this liability here that could be taking everything we say and immediately going to the national news with yeah. it. So they they do him a huge favor, and they're like, we got you an office over in the main hospital building. And we're going to get you set up. And essentially, like, excluded this guy. So, we never saw him again after the first night. Like, he came in. He was still there the whole time. We never interfaced with the guy again.
1: You know the room with the Ebola patient? We pulled that curtain and divided that room. <laughs> this is now... This half is your office. <laughs> um, so, just to level set here. We kind of started with the quote-unquote day one, which was actually the second day. Right. The Ebola patient. This happening, this Anderson Cooper, is that the next day? That's
0: over. So the that's basically the uh, 24 hours later, and then and then this is when the real 24 hour news cycle starts. Where they're where they're doing press conferences in the middle of the night, news is breaking at all hours of the day. it, It really becomes like this 24 hour circus.
1: I want this to be since this is the Tommy story. Let's from your initial phone call. Just brief, how many hours are you at the office? Are you coming home? Like, what's your days like at this point?
0: Yeah, so I drove in that morning when I got the first call that the, that the lab results were going. That Late in that day was the disaster press conference where the doctor goes into business for himself. That night is when the CDC guy shows up. So at this point, I've been at the office past midnight, from that morning. And then I go home and I'm back there at 6 a.m. the next morning. 6 a.m. between 6 and 8 a.m. the next morning is when the first blow up happened with Anderson Cooper. And then that day, and pretty much for the next probably two weeks, I was there from basically 6 a.m. to 11 or midnight every night. And then usually working at home. And I think I was actually on a lighter schedule than a lot of people who hardly ever left. Wow. And it was just, it was just, unbelievable and our people from our team and leadership have gone and spoken at conferences about just how they underestimated just the physical toll it took on the humans that were working there especially on the clinical side and then also the immense cost of so if you've got an office crammed with basically 30 or 40 executives they've all got to have water they've got to eat no, there's no plan in place for any of this so we had you know administrative assistants with their personal credit cards like going to Zoe's kitchen to me and being like, you know, how much chicken can I get? Right. You know, whatever you've got. You know, it was just it, there was no there was no process in place for any of this. The amount of trash that we generated, there was no plan to get it out of the office because the facilities would only come by every couple of days to clean the bins. I mean, we're generating like recycle bins full of paper trash every day. There's food waste everywhere. They had to they had to bring in like extra environmental people just to keep the office clean of of debris because there's Cokes and plates of food sitting everywhere, people, you know, people are eating at weird hours, people are sleeping on desks. I mean it was the craziest thing I've ever been a so, part of.
1: So just quick hypothetical. Obviously, this is kind of the premier hospital of that network.
0: Absolutely, the flagship.
1: Yeah. If this same thing happens in Presby Garland, I don't even know if there is a Presby Garland. There's no way. Do they move the patient? Or do they... To more premiere. Yeah, I mean, they can't have this kind of media coverage and house all these executives at a different facility. Yeah, Yeah. I think we were
0: lucky that we didn't have to answer that question because we come to find out later, forget about moving the patient. Just think about moving the used medical supplies from their room to a disposal facility. There was no plan in place to even do that because that's Mm. not like... Your normal normal medical waste contractor, they're not taking that on. Like, they're not taking Ebola bed sheets somewhere. So
1: I don't think we would have been able to move the patient. Did you... Was this before Favor and Postmates? Because <laughs> I might have given them a call. They would have taken on the risk. I think you're right. Another funny thing
0: that came out of the Anderson Cooper interview. So that building, that old TWU building there was a time where they were going to try to go into the education business themselves, and they came with this name of Texas Health Resources University. And this same president, who was no longer there, was a little known for jumping the gun. So he had had a monument sign that said Texas Health Resources University printed and stuck in front of the building. So when Anderson Cooper's talking on TV... We had gone in and put in the most half-ass, like, blue tape over university so that it just said Texas Health Resources. And they did media stories about Texas Health trying to cover up something because they thought, like, us taking university off was was some kind of a liability play on our part to not assume liability for whatever happened.
1: That's awesome. But
0: I actually had to make the call to the facilities guy, and it was like, hey, you guys have any, like, blue tape?" That you could go put over the sign, but I'll show you guys this now, and I will tweet this photo out, um, but I do think this is very humorous so
1: so they couldn't like just unscrew the letters and take down university
0: no it was it was a fully printed monument sign let me so this is the this was the Anderson Cooper um, video that got the sign removed, so you see oh, where it wow, says university yeah. so the next day, there's just blue tape over university in
1: that picture. Is that amazing? So that's when he's live on the scene. Yeah, that's oh, when yeah. he's live on the scene. Wow. So this is later on down the road, but this is when that happened.
0: Yeah, this was this was later on into the story, but yeah, we did end up having to tape over this. As side.
1: like marketing and PR, did you guys ever think about just leaving it? And then immediately trying to dis. Well, we're Texas Health Resources. Texas Health Resources University, completely different. Oh yeah, and and <laughs> you know
0: we'll get into this in probably episode three of this topic. But when when
1: everything
0: is over, and there's starting to be litigation, they're looking at, well, what, does is the hospital owned by this company? Is Texas own Health Resources owned by this company? Who's liable? Who worked for who? Who worked for corporate? I mean, there there was so much interconnectedness and investigation into that they immediately point to that sign being taped as like our attempt to cover it up. And really, we just did it because we were like, well, hey, if we're going to get all this free publicity, we may as well have them say the name right. We don't even have a university. like We may as well give them the right name. Did your university have a basketball team? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we were very, very small. We did not even have a basketball team. (laughs) So as you can imagine, while this is going on, there is a much more important thing happening, which is the emergency room trying to figure out if, in fact anybody else in the city's been exposed to Ebola because that you got to remember important. this guy came in in a private car, walked in the main door, sat in a chair in the emergency room, talked to who knows who. Ebola is a highly contagious disease. So there could be well, did
1: that left. Yeah. When, who knows? Oh where. yeah.
0: So, so they've got a team of people that are, that are using every piece of camera footage transaction you know just grilling his family members every, that were with him and every move that he where made where did you go what streets did you take because they've got to now compile a list of people that are going to be monitored and watched
1: yeah did he live with family or did he live alone well he was just new in the country so oh. he had
0: family here that he was staying with in an apartment adjacent to the hospital oh. so, it was an apartment
2: with like i feel like it was like 6 or 8 Family members total correct, wow,
0: and in a, a, a big complex. So, so you've now got a pretty major potential potential pandemic on your hands, depending on what and how he came in contact with. So, one of the things our hospital was responsible for doing was identifying the people in the emergency room that he might have come in contact with. Now, the majority of those people are staff, so they get the terrible news of like, "Hey, you're now quarantined at the hospital." So, we turned an entire floor of the hospital into essentially a hotel for employees. Because the idea was the disease has a certain incubation period, and if you're within that period and you spike a fever, like you're going into full lockdown. And we're certainly not sending anybody else home. So now we've got this confined group of people that are essentially like the three of us sitting around a table looking at each other like, you feeling all right? Yeah? <laughs> feeling okay? Yeah. And, and all- getting their temperatures checked every three to you know six hours to see if there's been a spike.
1: And all of these people that you know he contacted at the hospital er whatever that are now in this you know makeshift quarantine hotel floor of the hospital all of them between when he came in and the diagnosis they probably all went home right they probably interacted with people absolutely at lunch.
0: so it's almost like you're trying to play catch up on something that's already out of the bag yeah well one such individual was a homeless gentleman that's known in the medical community as what we like to call a frequent flyer. Mm. Would you like to hazard a guess what a frequent flyer is?
1: He is someone that comes to the hospital often because he's homeless.
0: And And he has issues. And what do they have at a hospital that people like? Opioids. Drugs. Hmm. Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas. Frieden also said officials are observing a homeless man who had come into contact with Duncan. He was taken to a Dallas hospital for evaluation while described as a low-risk individual. So in our hospital over the years had done a lot of work to curtail the opioid crisis, even before it became a national issue, and to try to understand the people that were constantly coming in. And people, you know, would come, these um, you know, indigent homeless people would come in with these, you know, sensational injuries that they would harm themselves to get prescriptions for opioids, and it was a real problem. So, this was a known issue. Well, this particular guy was very well known to the staff. And they also knew that he came in multiple times a week to the emergency room. Well, as they're reviewing the footage and getting a lay of who was there, they find out, well, this guy was there that night at the same time in the same waiting room. And it's been three or four days and we ain't seen him. Mm. So now we've got a real risk because if this guy say contracted the disease and then just crawled somewhere and died, like you could have a potentially like the most contagious time in Ebola is when it's on a dead body. Like that's where a lot of people contracted is burying the dead. So if this guy has potentially contracted Ebola and died in Dallas, yeah, because mean that this could be like horror movie level scenario.
2: I'm, I'm speculating here culturally, but isn't that a big reason why you have these epidemics in Africa because they don't they won't burn the body? Correct.
0: They don't handle the they don't dispose of the dead properly in that kind of a situation, and that's what causes the pandemic. I've never heard
1: about this part. I've never heard about homeless This is probably
0: one of the most fascinating stories and it also becomes one of the most humorous. So we're going to give this guy a name because I actually don't know his name, but we'll call him Homeless Mike. So everybody starts to kind of gossip around like, Homeless Mike is well known at Baylor, he's well known at UT Southwestern, he's well known at Parkland. So the bolo on Homeless Mike goes out and it's like, if he comes into your ER, do not let him go. Like, Homeless Mike, we need to see Homeless Mike. So day one, day two, day three goes by. Well, are
1: you calling the other ERs? Oh yeah, yeah. And he hasn't. Sh- no, nobody's got him. Out of the Everybody knows who he is. Okay. He's
0: very well known around town. A bit of an eccentric character. People are becoming very concerned that they can't find him. So the police are looking for him. Well, there's a meeting at Parkland Hospital amongst our leadership and some of the um, emergency responders in the in the area. So they're basically having a meeting to determine how they're going to transport patients that come down with Ebola if there was a mass epidemic. So say all these people that have networked out and been exposed all become symptomatic on the same day. And there's all these influx of calls to 911 that are like, oh my gosh, I think I have Ebola. How they're going to handle that. So they've got emergency preparedness experts from all over America at Parkland Hospital. Wow. They're standing outside the emergency room. And who comes strolling up to the Parkland emergency room but Homeless Mike while they're standing there? So one of these guys, he's like an ex-firefighter, big jack guy. He's like, holy S, there's Homeless Mike. And he screams out and he goes, you, stop right there. Well, Homeless Mike, he's been around. He's street smart enough to know that when somebody yells at to you, you get the F out yeah. of there. He turns around and starts running for the parking lot. This ex-firefighter. Does he have the... 24/7 title on his waist or on his shoulder. <laughs> he sprints faster than Drake Maverick has ever sprinted in his life. In form, tackles homeless Mike in the parking lot of Parkland Hospital. Dude,
1: I don't know if I'd be doing that. With this, I mean, that, like Ebola. when you talk
0: about the heroes in this thing and the selfless acts, like this guy's like eff it. Yeah. like this guy's not getting away. Well, then
2: that'll be great.
0: So for this podcast for those listening, the uh, the long cruise here apparently. Yeah. It's not mine. I do my own lawn lawn work. It's the
2: only work I do.
0: (laughs) So then the problem becomes what do we do with homeless Mike? Kill him. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Edit that part out. Because he's kind of our responsibility. He has no home, hence the first his first name being homeless. (laughs) And we can't, you know, we don't know his criminal background history, so we can't put him on a patient floor. We can't incarcerate him because he's not in jail. He hasn't committed a crime. And we certainly can't put him on the floor of the hospital that is housing our own employees. So then we concoct the greatest plan ever known to man, which is hey, the sixth floor is kind of under construction, but there's a few rooms that are there. We're going to lock Homeless Mike up in the hospital on the sixth (laughs) floor. (laughs) Is that allowed? (laughs) So Homeless Mike goes up there and he's being fairly compliant. Now he's got some probably some capacity issues.
2: But he didn't know what's going on. It hadn't been explained to him. No, it's been to explained to him. Okay.
0: And it's also been explained to him that it's very dangerous if he leaves. So he's like, well, if I'm going to stay here, I'm, I'm going to need some cigarettes because okay. I, I smoke. So we said, well, we could probably accommodate that. And then he's like, and you know, I, I do enjoy watching TV quite a bit and eating. <laughs> so they set him up, and the hospital president, this is a true story, the interim hospital president, goes to the convenience store, the Conoco on the corner, buys a carton of Marlboros, takes them up and allows this guy, which a hospital is the most no-smoking of no-smoking facilities, this guy to treat the sixth floor of the main building as his personal condo and just smoke as many cigarettes as he wants, watch as much cable TV as he wants, uh-huh. and, eat, and he could order hospital room service and get as much food as he wanted. Well, he stays there for four days and five days, and they get him through the incubation period. And they're like, okay, great news. Um, You're not symptomatic. You're free to go. And he's like, I'm right. Great news is different. I went to no less than five meetings, and the topic of the meeting was how do we get him to leave the hospital, because they don't want to create. I mean, the media is under such scrutiny of, or the hospitals under such scrutiny by the media. That if we forcibly evict the guy, if he th- makes a scene and goes to the media, then that's just another yeah. another black mark of onto our reputation. And he doesn't want to leave, so he ends up getting to stay for like days later until a security guard finally coaxes him out of the building. Wow. But homeless Mike had a week long vacation with free cigarettes during the Ebola crisis, quarantined in our hospital. Do you think he talks about that on his podcast? <laughs> I want to extend him the olive branch if he would like to come give his side of the story. Well, he can come to Tennessee for that. <laughs> yeah. I will give him the address to the garage.
1: Wow. So, quick uh, just follow-up. At this point, originally only Austin could test for Ebola. Correct. At this point, can you guys now, since you potentially are ground zero for this pandemic like the people that come in now that you think might have it, can you test them yeah
0: this at this point the c d c has sent in their own lab techs and have taken over our lab and okay. we have we are now at the sophistication level of the c d c to for for testing
1: for the disease. I don't know if you can speak to this, but normal hospital stuff functioning as as best it can. I mean, are you guys diverting patients that would normally come to you to other hospitals?
0: Yeah. So we've put our ER on what's known as divert, which means we've notified all ambulance drivers, don't bring anybody here. If a patient were to walk in, they would, could still be treated if they were crazy enough to. And we were really torn on what to do with elective procedures. So like our women's hospital, which delivers a ton of babies, I think every kid represented in this whole garage was born at that hospital. Yeah, Um is detached from that building. There's no danger to anybody there. And they were running business as usual. But as you can imagine, a lot of mothers are like, yeah, I'm not going to be having my baby at this Ebola hospital. So we were transferring people to our Plano facility, our Allen facility. But we were trying to keep running the women's unit as as good as possible. Elective surgeries, to the best of our ability, were going on. But the hospital volume essentially went from to 20% uh, in a matter of days. And the ER volume was basically non-existent. Unless unless somebody was really foolish enough just to walk in.
1: So not to be callous, but are there meetings going on of, hey, our revenue generation is 20% of normal and we have a whole lot of expenses now?
0: Yes. Okay. There's a lot of those meetings going on. And this is where I thought I really admired the CEO because he did two things is he made an announcement to the employees that said, I'm going to pay everybody out like you were working, and nobody's going to lose their job during this Oh, so incident. there
1: was... I didn't think about that. So there's normal nor- nursing tech staff that oh, yeah. are not coming to work because... Oh, yeah, because no, all the patients. patients have canceled. Yeah. Okay. So he...
0: in in typical hospital fashion, like, if there's not enough work, like, those are hourly employees. They're not salaried employees. I thought that was a really admirable it thing is. he did because, you know... the the company as a whole was financially sound so i don't think there was ever a worry that this would bankrupt the company
1: are those employees... But the hospital
0: what? itself was you know going to miss every target projection for revenue for the, at least that year if not you know whatever damage was done to the reputation moving forward and i thought it was really awesome that he stepped up right off the bat and was like i mean i think this was in the first few days and said hey as long as this is going on like everybody's getting paid mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. we're not going to we're not going to screw over the you know radiology tech because of this totally unforeseen incident.
1: So all those people are just staying at home. Yep. And I'm sure they figured out because I think a lot of them are somewhat hourly and yep. schedule shift. They're just like, here's your normal. We're yep. just gonna pay you. Yep. And they just stayed at home. Yep. They didn't and tell them like, hey, free cigarettes on the sixth floor. <laughs> no, out.
0: but uh, I'm telling you, a lot of people that were in a, a hot zone. They, they spent a lot of time away from their families during those first couple of weeks because of quarantine, which was rough.
1: Do those people, the ones that are on the makeshift hotel, do they get extra bonus?
0: Let's just say that that Christmas, as a, to use a Vince McMahon or a Bruce Richard line, they took care of a lot of people that Christmas. And that's not a typical thing they do, including myself, which was very nice. I wasn't expecting that. But they, uh, they took care of pretty much anybody that was directly impacted by that incident, very well. They, I can't say a bad thing about how they treated the employees during the whole uh, the whole incident. They took care took care of everybody.
1: So we kind of jumped ahead. We were on day two-ish, two ish, two ish, yeah. And then we jumped ahead to yeah, to that's ho- when they started the counter on homeless Mike hasn't right. been here, right?
0: So and over the yeah, and over the course of the in between days, there was just as you can imagine, the whole city has fallen into panic. So we set up a call center where we were taking calls of concerned people that could report close contact. Well, what that did is we had to do that to help contain the investigation. But it brought out every lunatic, crazy person Mm -hmm. in the city of Dallas. And I mean, I would occasionally even answer these calls like everybody was filling in and doing shifts. And, And I'm not joking. People would dead serious call and say, I drove by the hospital with my windows down. Do I need to come in and get tested?
1: You're like it's too late.
0: Yeah. <laughs> You're done. So, and then the other thing that would happen, and, and we got these phone calls, and they were unbelievable. Is people that thought they had a cure for Ebola that was holistic, and they were offering to give it to us because they were so worried about the patient. All right. And people would call and say the crazy stuff. And they'd be like, you know, the the leaf of this tree. If you do this, you know, grind it up and give it to him at this interval, like it'll cure it. And and so we're having to like filter out those calls with the legitimate, um, you know, hey, I was in the ER that night. What should I do? Calls. Um, it was it was just a really difficult time to make sense of what was going on. But
2: you had talking points that were prepared for well, some of the was, standard and questions. And that was a lot
0: of my role is writing the talking points. So right. I'm I'm now you know become this clinical expert. Because I'm having to meet with all these doctors and then take what they're saying and then write it in a way people can understand and then build it into talking points, build it into messaging points, writing, you know, um, scripts for people to read on camera to convey the information. But the way the information was coming in was so fragmented as you really see, and not to take the side of our current president, but you really see, like, where the faults of the media are. because. Yeah. I'm in the room with the CEO of the health system and every doctor that's treated it. And they're telling me exactly what's happening while CNN is on and they're reporting, well, sources have told us that, you know, the patient's passed away and the patient's fine and they're making stuff up and just running with it and sensationalizing whatever they can. And, you know, we've heard that they have four additional positive confirmed cases in the hospital. We had zero yeah and never even never even a thought of one and and it was such a funny juxtaposition because we're looking out the window at the media staging area from our office while they're live reporting things that are n- completely not true and our reaction is at the time was of course my reaction is like every time we would see something we would want to immediately disprove it and we realized really quickly that's not the right approach like you have to be very measured in what you say and you never, ever, ever publicly say anything until you've checked every possible fact because people want to help. And they tell you things and then you interpret it as fact and then when you, when you play it out, you realize it wasn't true. Mm-hmm. The biggest example of that is the first question we asked is, well, how the heck did we miss that this guy had traveled to Africa? And somebody said, well, we asked him and he lied to us. Mm-hmm. So we went with some some softer version of that, in a press release, and it wasn't true. Like, all that was was there was a line in the medical record that said travel history, and it said N.A. That's not, they never asked him, you know, but yeah, like... not on point. You know, we get, you know, the director of the emergency room call us and say, hey, you know, this happened. So, yeah, if somebody calls and said that happened, why wouldn't you believe them? But what we came to find out is that, you know, as cliche as it is, there really was varying versions of the truth and nobody I think was being intentionally disingenuous but we realized pretty quickly we had to fact check things to the degree that it took a long time to get a statement out so then it appeared that we were being um, difficult with the media because we wouldn't comment on anything because there was things they would ask us that we would feel pretty confident like yeah we have the answer to that but we wouldn't answer it because one of the issues too is we mentioned again early in a press release that there might have been a problem with the the hospital's medical record system. And I think we said a flaw. Why we said that, I don't know, because the flaw, was there wasn't a flaw with it, but the information we needed wasn't in there. Well, before, I mean, that that press release had been out for maybe 10 minutes, and the attorney for that company that owned the software, they were like, we are going to sue you for, you know, whatever, unless you retract it immediately. So then we have to go back out and make a statement of, Oh by the way there was no flaw and you know so everything so we did everything yeah. we did that those first 3 or 4 days we just looked stupid i mean we jumped the gun to communicate then we had to retract then we panicked and didn't say anything so what this caused to happen is that the executives realized that we couldn't handle this situation and i'm saying that in the the nicest way possible but this was this had just grown to a point where it was out of the the skill set of what they could reasonably expect a local PR team to handle. Right. So they bring in a company called Burson Marsteller. Uh oh. You should look these guys up sometime. Like okay. these are the guys that go in and fix the big problems. Every so like the BP oil spill. Right. Like these are the guys that drug BP back up out of the mud. When Bluebell had Listeria, these are the guys that went in and helped them rehab their image. So they call in these guys, and if you thought that guy from the CDC was something, <laughs> you wouldn't believe these guys. So they, they're on flights probably about a weekend.
1: So real quick, first, this company sounds awesome. That they are awesome. That's what they do. But in this crisis situation, you your executives like know about these people? they reaching out, or are these people looking at the news and like... You know who THR needs? They need us. Oh no, they're, they're very, calling you. Yeah,
0: they're very smart, and they did. They even played it better than that. They were like calling board members of the hospital and being like, "You care about this facility? You need mm. to tell them to bring us in because you guys are you guys are you guys are ruining screwing the subs." Yeah,
1: strong move.
0: So here they come, and and again, it's it's like we knew we needed help, but this was it. This this was the this was the FBI coming in. Mm-hmm. These guys were unbelievable. They show up in their suits. They all, now of course, this is pre AirPods. They've all got the white earbuds in. They're always on a call. Like, even when they're talking to you, they're on a call with somebody else. And man, did they cuss. (laughs) (laughs) So, we were a faith based health system that would frequently start meetings with prayers. These guys come in here and be like, I mean, every other word was an F bomb. It was what the F, F this, F that. But they are connected to everybody. These guys are more plugged in with, they know every news outlet. They can get any news show. They can spin media coverage in your favor with the context they have. They can do things that we could never do. So like they come in there and start doing their assessment and they're like, oh my gosh, you have this great story of all these employees coming together living in quarantine. Let's get 60 Minutes in to cover it. They pick up the phone and 60 Minutes producers are there the next day scouting the story. They say, you know, you need to get the... Um, Politicians on your side. Rick Perry's there; he was the governor at the time. Barack Obama's calling our chief nurse officer, chief nursing officer, to uh, offer words of encouragement. These guys make all that stuff happen right. through their contacts and start slowly shifting that like idiotic public perception of our hospital into okay. one of a this really more competent, yeah. high acuity organization, which is yeah. amazing. So. This is a probably a good point to introduce a couple of the interesting local figures. So, do you remember a guy named Clay Jenkins, Judge oh, Clay yeah. Jenkins? Yeah, for yeah. sure. All right, County Judge Clay Jenkins is in by his position with Dallas County in the leadership process. He leads the Homeland Security and leads this really entire Ebola containment investigation operation. You're not making all the decisions. He told me earlier he's deferring to some of the experts, but he is experts, but he's in the studio uh... for his first reporter interview of the day because this is really the first time you've had a, a moment to catch your breath right it's been a busy busy day
1: yeah we, uh, we've been busy with the work behind the scenes from the time this broke up until the the press conference today and then you're the first reporter i've talked to you one-on-one because we're setting up an incident command right. system you've
0: got a, a, a structure in place now right. to handle everything and i you don't need to assign all the spots we don't need to know how it works but right. Explain, I guess, that you're able to gather information and disseminate information, and that's probably the best part
1: of it, right? That's right, and we're bringing in people from the city of Dallas, from DISD, from our county departments, um, and one of my staff, uh, the, the chief of emergency management, who reports directly to me, will be the incident commander. Um, and um, we'll, get, we'll get all that information in, in real time. We'll get those out to people like Mike Rawlings and Mike Miles, who've done a great job of, of letting the public know that this is a situation that they need not um, be alarmed about
0: it. so this is the guy, like the old west gunslinger he 's the guy that went into the apartment the first patient was staying in, yeah, I without remember that. a mask or anything, just to make sure like that the scene was secure, touched a bunch of stuff in there, just doesn 't care about anything. He's he's intimately involved with every decision because he's kind of speaking on behalf of Dallas County and the safety of Dallas County. So he's the now become the spokesman for Dallas okay, County. Okay,
1: so real quickly, I recognize that name. I know I saw him on the news a bunch. He was just a judge? Yeah, Like city councilman, right? Yeah, councilman. Okay, councilman. Yeah. So that's kind of why yeah. he was... No, the, so he
0: assumes, that for that district, so he assumes the role as like the liaison. Yeah. The behind the scenes is, that dude, like... He didn't pay attention to anything when he was there. <laughs> he was just hanging out. He had, like, these two little, like, 18-year-old lackeys that were, you know, his, I guess, his uh, handlers. Hmm. They were men. Oh. That... <laughs> they were, like, <laughs> yeah, the minos.
2: Okay. And and all he might was, not call my concerns, but yeah. okay. Well,
0: I mean, all he was interested in was when the next time he was going to be able to get in front of the camera.
2: He, he, uh, I think he has since
0: left that post. That's correct. I think he might have even been voted out of office. Yeah.
2: Some I think he sparred with Mr. Wiley Price on pretty much everything. Yeah.
0: So you had that going on. And then we had the Rick Perry on-site visit, which was a whole other circus. So what what makes quick
1: level set, how many days in are we here? So we're probably a little over a weekend. And you're still twelve plus hours a day. Twelve plus
0: hours a day. Well the problem my problem that I encountered here, and this will come up later when the litigation starts, is you've now have this massive influx of CDC people, of corporate level Texas health executives. And I'm the, really the only person that's at a high enough level to work with them that works at that facility. So I mentioned that I've got this badge that can get me anywhere. So I've also got access to print on any of the printers. I mean, this sounds stupid. But none yeah, of them but are set the up or configured this way. So every time, so it's like, hey, somebody needs to go let Rick Perry in the parking garage. They're sending me. Hey, the CEO needs to print his speech. Here it is. You print it for him because you're the one that can connect to the printer. So yeah. these things get rectified over the course of the crisis as they bring in, you know, they bring in IT people. But but for a few days, like I was the most indispensable person there, not because of my intelligence, but because of my access,
2: and so, all because you put your name at the top of that piece of paper
0: right
1: so, <laughs> so quickly what, what, when you were printing out the speech did you do the the fun thing we do in college where someone's got to print a speech on your computer and you just do the search and replace like then with you know balls or something <laughs> and just do you do that to him? <laughs> of course okay it would have been irresponsible not
0: to do that but what ends up i think what ends up being the what ends up happening is um when they start looking at it later from a litigation standpoint, my name shows up all the time point. because I, I look on paper to be a much more influential figure in the decision making than I actually was because I was printing all the speeches. I was printing all the memos. I wasn't reading them. I wasn't writing a lot of yeah. them. But I'm You're just always a clerical there. worker at so, this point. So I feel like, and we'll get to it, it when we get to that part of the story. I can't wait for that part of the yeah. story. But I feel like the the lawyers were very underwhelmed when they met me, and I started explaining my role because I think they thought I was going to be like the smoking gun that was yeah. going to turn the case. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. You hit Printed Control P, and the the <laughs> the printer comes out. The paper comes out of the magic machine. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you.
2: So what are you doing to uh, help you get through these twelve to eighteen hour days? Are you just Like,
0: mainlining four-hour energy? I'll tell you what. I ate so much Arby's. Oh, God. Because there was an Arby's right next to the hospital, and, like, I would get to the point where I was so fried that I would have to get away, and I would just drive through Arby's and get a sandwich and then eat it in my car and then go back into the office. So, like,
2: four hours of the day was actually in the bathroom?
0: (laughs)
1: Just full throttle. So, and if we need to hold off on this to get to something else, that's fine, but... What's the, uh, in addition to eating a bunch of curly fries?
0: Yeah, which, you know, hey, let's not, let's not rule that out.
1: What's the, uh, the home life like? You're getting home late, leaving super early. Yeah.
0: My wife was pretty understanding of this, but I mean, I pretty much checked out of all social activities. Yeah. I mean, you know, our monthly poker tournament, I'm not going to it. Church, not making it most Sundays. I mean, for, for basically the entire month of October, I became dedicated to work
1: at all times did you ever end up having to stay overnight at the office
0: never stayed overnight at the office i was there sometimes you know obviously most days was there more than i wasn't there but I never never did sleep there although some did but I, I think too you know the benefit of where i lived is a lot of the senior executives lived in fort worth so they were living out of hotels you know they they, they never even went to their homes at least i got to go home and get a change of clothes right which yeah which was
1: nice and when you come home You're obviously stressed out from work stuff. Any type of way to... (laughs) If you're referring to
0: the fact that exactly 10 months or 9 months after the Ebola crisis, my wife gave birth to a child, (laughs) I can't confirm that did happen.
2: But there's also the fact that you
0: weren't home a lot. (laughs) Right. And the fact that my daughter looks like Bobby Lashley. These are all good points. Somebody pulled a fake blood prank at the hospital, like pulled up to a loading dock and threw a like Ziploc bag of fake blood that said Ebola on the bag. (laughs) True story.
1: Was that, was that wrong of me? That was in poor taste. Okay.
0: So I'm going to, a lot of these days blur together, but I'm going to kind of hit a big milestone in the story, which is unfortunately the initial patient did pass away well, this is news to yeah, me. There's a lot. I mean, are we intentionally not saying his name? Yes. Okay. I was very. I, I really? can say, I can say, as somebody that was there, they did everything they could for this man. People were devastated when this happened. I mean, I saw people that I was really close to break down and cry. Like this was, this was spun to be a very uncaring organization at different times. There was the most genuine emotion I've ever experienced when this happened. Well, and the
2: other part of that is what a tremendous win it would have been for the hospital and the organization if he would have survived. Oh,
0: absolutely. And I mean, you know, again, you know, looking at it from a PR standpoint, you know, that's the outcome is like, Hey, things got off to a rocky start, but you know, we were able, we were able to come together, band together.
2: Because everybody, that's just the nature of the world. Yeah. This type of thing, everybody, the public views everything in hindsight. Freaks out, but in the end, if he survives and no one else is either infected or dies from it, it's a it's a win. It's
0: a su- yeah. success. So and- this is a picture I wanted to show you guys. So this was the this was the actual whiteboard or Post-it board that was in the the uh, center that we hand wrote out after we got the news. So when the phone started ringing for the media, this was the official statement we were allowed to
1: say. Can I read it? You can read it. Okay, so it's three different little lines. It says. We can confirm he has passed. Cause of death was Ebola. Probably not a shocker there. (laughs) And the last line, family has been notified and on site. So getting back to your previous thing, um, I think people, if you go into the patient care as your work, those are caring people. Yes. And especially in this situation, you know, it's a, you're putting yourself at personal risk. You are working extremely long hours.
0: And I'll stop you there for one other point of clarification. Everybody that did care for him was given the option not to, and I don't think anybody turned it down.
1: See, I mean, you feel for those people, like they really cared enough to, I mean, essentially put their lives on the line and then to, after all that and all the work. To not have it with a successful outcome is, I can I can understand. Oh no, it was it was terrible. just
0: gut wrenching for everybody involved. And unfortunately, when that story broke, we had um, some that really felt like there was a racial component to it, which drove the Reverend Jesse Jackson to the hospital.
1: Okay, I'm surprised he wasn't
0: already there. Again, in my role with. Uh, my badge access. I was Jesse Jackson's personal escort throughout the hospital. What was he like? This is this is probably the funniest part of the story to me. And this I hope this doesn't get us any flack.
1: Hold on. He, just to level set, he showed after. He showed right as I, I,
0: and I need to, and this sounds terrible, but it's been a long time. It was either, I think it was after, but it was really close after or really, or right before. But okay. he was later in the game.
1: Okay. How many days from when the patient entered the ER, you get that call, how many days? It was a little
0: over, it was a little, it was between one and two weeks. It was right in that time frame. And everybody's exhausted. Well, so I'm escorting Jesse around and it's very funny because he comes in with his, you know, black SUV. He's got like tinted windows. They roll up. They don't, you know, they just pull right in front of the building. They don't park where we're told him to park. He's got this just odd cast of, like, fully suited characters that are, like, his bodyguards, I guess. So he comes down. I take him downstairs, like, through a, a lower level of the building that's, like, a staff-only hallway to keep him out of the... We don't want, you know, him out in the open. And, and we had we had arranged a meeting uh, for him b- with the care team. Because he, he the reason he was coming was grave concerns about how the patient was cared for.
1: Okay, so... Was the hospital clearly? You were waiting for him, so you were. Oh, notified. we were. We
0: were notified he was coming. We were. We were told to get prepared. We even assembled the cast of characters we wanted to meet with him, which but the, again we did the real cheap. Like, probably need to find some African Americans to get in this meeting because that might be a good look here. And I mean, we. It was. It's all. I mean, all these things that you think you know won't come into play. Like, it all happened.
2: No, it's it's all the cover the community college catalog that's yeah, what you I mean, want to got room.
0: we got a we got a, a, a the highest female leader in the organization like two african Amer- an african-american patient advocate an african-american doctor the hospital president i mean we we ran the gamut yeah for this meeting
1: he reverend jesse jackson he just dis- he chooses to come this isn't the the company you hired that was setting no, stuff up no the
0: company we hired was actively trying to help us figure out how to mitigate his visit because he, he doesn't ask. he doesn't visit if it's good and they're warning us about him like
1: this is not good and but you, you can't i'm sure they're advising you on this you can't say we're okay we we don't want you to come <laughs> yeah, no
0: because then he would hold he He held a rally, anyways, but it would have been, you know, what are they covering up? And of course, he had privately met with the family before. So he's already got that, you know, kind of ammo coming in. Well, the guy comes in, couldn't be nicer. Like, Hmm. very chill. We're standing in the hallway. There's like a meeting where some doctors are meeting and they had like a little buffet line. He's like, Hey, uh, what's the deal with that food over there? I'm like, would you like some? And he's like, You mind? And if me and my guys grab some, I'm like, Yeah, get a plate. Yeah. He grab he just grabs like some pork off there, you know, and salads eating, just chilling. Well, then that we escort him into the meeting. I don't get to go in the meeting. I'm just standing in the hallway looking at my phone. It's a closed group meeting. They come out, everybody's shaking hands, they pose for a photo. Everybody's like, he was like, he he says to the care team, he's like, you guys, that was that was really great. Like, thank you so much. I really enjoyed meeting you. You know, thank you for your service. She, you know, hugged the women. He, you know, it was like everybody smiles. The hospital president smiling. He leaves that meeting, walks straight to the front of the hospital, gets in front of a camera, and's like,
1: "We've got a very serious problem in there." The plight of the Dallas Ebola patient brought the Reverend Jesse Jackson to North Texas today. He met with Thomas Duncan's doctors and prayed with relatives for his recovery. Doctors say Duncan remains in critical condition, but his liver function and blood pressure have improved. Jackson believes Duncan should not have been released after his first trip to the ER. And then he got sick, came here with all the symptoms, was not admitted, went home, got more sick and came back. Another thing now that after two or three days of hesitancy, the hospital now is working vigorously to salvage its own reputation and and its responsibility.
0: In totally 180s. Wow! 180s and, and, and immediately goes into there was failures all over the place, institutional racism. Like never once when he's in the building or meeting with the people does he go anywhere near that.
1: So why, I guess he goes and meets. To, to say he did. To say he met with them and now he knows all these things.
0: I've met with the hospital leadership and there's some grave concerns about what happened here. Wow. Yeah. That dude 180 us so bad, and they warned us about it, and he did it. So you knew but it was my, coming. But my interaction with him was awesome. Like, I mean, he couldn't have, I mean, could not have been cooler with me.
2: Maybe it was the buffet; it
0: was yeah. a little disappointing. So, there's a picture of him standing in the hallway right before we walk in that meeting. This is right after he's hit the buffet line.
1: So you're getting you're getting stealth pictures. Yeah.
0: Oh yeah. So then okay, so then that's that picture, and I'll tweet all these for those listening. Then that's him when he walked out and said we have a grave problem.
1: Wow, you're real close. Yeah.
0: I'm right with him. I'm escorting him. And then this know. is the this is the shot on TV where I'm standing in the background. <laughs> oh look at you. Yeah. There's Tommy. Just hanging out in the background while there's he's only, making that face going like we've got <laughs> some serious There's Literally
1: issues. two people in the frame. It's him and you. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. yeah Did that, you have a look
2: on your face like I will have a different job in like two weeks from now.
1: I, there was a
0: lot of fear, and and other than the fact that the leadership was so kind to us, like there was a lot of fear of like we we've we've effed everything yeah. to holy hell. Like the look on done. Tommy's
1: face is like when you're on Brock's shoulders in the F five and you're about to be spun, you know it's coming.
0: So, um, but this will be a good this will be a good kind of place to stop the first part of the story. So here here's here's where I'll end with this. So our patients passed away, and this is the last funny story, and this is one of my oh, other we'll, favorite ones. Well, we'll lead it up with he's passed away, and here's a funny story. So they had to transport the body, and there was a lot of worry that there was going to be over-media coverage of the body transport, and we wanted to ensure that nothing weird happened with that. So we arranged a place that was covered from the helicopters. So they didn't do like a Viking funeral at Joe Pool Lake? There was a, <laughs> Listen, there was discussion about how to handle it, like to the point of could we... Incinerated on site because just based on like protocol, it's not safe to transport. We found a company to transport it. The media is flying around, so (laughs) so clay Clay Jenkins' (laughs) funeral and cremation. He put it in his F 350. (laughs) (laughs) So, there's there, there, myself and the PR team are standing there, and there's just a great deal of trepidation. Well, what happened is after the patient passed away the employees are done. Like, they're, they're mentally fried. And they don't have anybody that's trained to go in and, and actually get the body out of the room.
1: So the room is obviously, once he, we didn't really... Everything's locked this. down and once nothing he's moves. in, they're full hazmat space yeah. suits when they go and in nothing there. Walking in <laughs> slow motion, yeah. <laughs> so,
0: so essentially, they need somebody to go in there and do it. We've got a kind of a maverick cowboy guy on our staff that's like the guy that trains everybody how to use the protective equipment. He's like, well, hell, I'll do it. <laughs> puts on the puts on the you know full suit, goes in there, um, Can does we get it. Well, this then, guy on the podcast, yeah. <laughs> this guy was I mean he wore cowboy boots under his scrubs. I mean this that's this guy. Like I mean he was a g- good old boy as it gets. So he he gets the, everything done. They transport the body away, and then this is kind of like the closure of the whole thing. Are you? Well, I'm adjacent to where this is okay. happening, but I'm not witnessing it. So okay. I'm I'm a very safe distance away. Well, this guy comes back over and his job was when it's all done, he comes back over to us to say that it's that it's done, the the body's left, and then to that point then we're just into damage control mode. Like there's no more risk. He comes over to us, he's in a t-shirt and gym shorts now, he's soaking wet because he has to step in like the showers afterwards. Yeah. And he's like he's like, Hey, we're um we're good, you know, like everything went fine, you know, I'll I'll still be under quarantine, you know, so I'll still be here for five more days or whatever it is. Um, but we're, you know, we're in the clear and then he's, so then we're kind of walking with him and then we get in the elevator and, uh, it's like the service elevator. We had never been in it before and the floor is kind of wet. And he's like, well, hell, this is the elevator we had him in right here. (laughs) And we're standing there on the floor on this wet floor. And he's like, ah, don't worry. That's the, you know, bleach solution or whatever. You're fine. Like you got nothing to worry about. Well, me and the other PR guy, we took off our shoes when we got out of that elevator yeah. and burned them. Really? <laughs> yes.
1: You wow. it? We Tim Riggins <laughs> our shoes.
0: And uh, so I leave, uh, go home that night, and we had tickets to go to Austin City Limits, the music festival. Yes. And um, I asked my boss, I said, I've never, like, other than that elevator thing, which I didn't mention, um, I'd never been near the patient, and I said, hey, is it okay? I had vacation in, you know, is it okay if I head to Austin? For ACL and she says, absolutely well, like you're close
2: to the CDC. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, she said <laughs> she said, you know, you've earned a you know, there'll be plenty of work here when you get back. Take some time off and enjoy it. Yeah. So my wife and I headed to ACL, and little did we know the story was just about to get amped up to eleven. Don't touch
2: Got a man, baby. Boy, I up in
0: the-